Hello, everybody, and welcome to this episode of the SWAR podcast. My name is Ryan Hall, and I'm Deputy Chief for Oxford County Paramedic Services. Today, we will be talking about compassion fatigue, secondary trauma, and strategies for debriefing with your peers. With me today are Nancy Lawrence. Hello, Nancy. Hi, I'm Nancy Lawrence. I'm the manager of Just Culture Wellness and Staff Support at London Health Sciences Centre and a trained educator on compassion fatigue, vicarious trauma. Also joining us today is Ted Sanders. Hi, Ryan. I'm Ted. I'm a paramedic with Oxford County Paramedic Services, as well as a peer support team member for our paramedics. Thanks, Ted. For those of you that want to follow up on what we are talking about today, we will include links to the reference material in the podcast notes. Let me start by asking each of you why you became a compassion fatigue educator and trainer or involved in peer support. So I worked for many years in patient relations at London Health Sciences Centre, and in that role, you are immersed in other people's pain and suffering and loss and and doing disclosure of harm when there's been a, a bad outcome. And I noticed I was doing that work from 2005 until 2013, and I noticed in around 2009, 2010, that I was bringing a different person to work. I wasn't finding the same joy in work. I had a, a lower level of patience and I uh, was more irritated by people. And there were a couple of incidents that kind of made me step back and try to solve what was happening. And one was a patient that frequented our emergency department and had complex medical and mental health history. And every time she went to emerge, she left and called my office with a complaint. And I noticed I would see her number come up on call display and I would just let it go to voicemail. I just didn't have it immediately pick up the phone and talk to her that particular day. And that was my job. <laughs> so... But the really telling moment was a mother of a a young man who had been admitted to hospital, and she was calling to complain about a dirty pillowcase. And it was over the phone, so thankfully, because my body language would have given me away. But I was irritated, and I felt like she was wasting my time. So I was very dismissive, kind of shut her down very quickly. But what I remember was the degree of upset was disproportionate to a dirty pillowcase. She was hysterical. And I didn't explore it in any way. I really just kind of shut her down. And um, and when I followed up with the leader in that area, I learned that her son had had a first episode of uh, psychosis and had thrown himself into a lit gas fireplace. And so his pillowcase was dirty because he had an open head wound. And I knew I had no compassion during that phone call. And so I had to kind of step back and figure out what was happening. I didn't know about compassion fatigue. Nobody talked to us about that and uh, started my journey of exploration. And that's where I became a trained educator based on having to solve what was happening to me. Thank you. Thank you for sharing that with us, Nancy. Ted? Well, I started my career in the world of paramedicine really young, and like a lot of us in the era of suck it up, buttercup. And we weren't trained in how to recognize emotional signs or how to take care of ourselves. The only kind of talking that we did was when we talked about other people that actually talked about their emotions. So it was, it was a tough time when I was a junior paramedic. When I started my career, you were working with a lot of people that had a lot of experience. And back in those days, we didn't have anything like helicopter responses. And when you saw helicopters, it was kind of fancy and on TV. And I can point back all the things that happened in my career back to a particular day. And I just warn you, sometimes some of this stuff is kind of a trigger. 
we responded to a pediatric VSA, which is, is stressful in its own for all of us out there that are in the world of paramedicine. On that particular day, we were running a call. It was out in a rural area. And when we got there, there just happened to be a helicopter flying over at the same time. And it was like the perfect storm. We got there, we got out, we did our thing. And the helicopter landed, never seeing one of those before. It was just overwhelming with my lack of experience in the situation that was going on. The flight medic got out, helped us with the patient, loaded the patient in the helicopter, and uh, then he said, one of you needs to come with me. And of course, being the junior guy, I wasn't going to be the one that was going to be picked to do that. So my partner got in the helicopter. The helicopter took off. The OPP scooped up the family and traveled off to the hospital. And there I was standing in the middle of a yard by myself, having seen something for the first time that was extraordinary. And I can remember the sound of the old rotator lights on the light bar going whirr, 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 you know, and watching the, the dressings and bandages kind of flowing down the, the laneway. I cleaned up. And I can honestly tell you, I don't remember how I got back to the station. I know I drove back to the station and I got there, but I don't remember the drive. And then getting there and being by myself and having to go home, not being trained on what to do next. And I wasn't going to talk to my family. There was no way I was going to divulge any of that to my family because I wasn't going to show any weakness to them, let alone my partner or let alone anybody at the station. And so I held that with me for years and years and years. And then as we all know, as your emotional bucket gets full, there just comes a tipping point where there's, there's no more room in your bucket. And I had what I call my snap moment and it was time for me to do something about it, but I didn't recognize it. It's, it's, it's rarely us that recognizes the problem. It's usually our peers or our families that do that. So I reached out and I, actually got some help and I pledged to myself that I would never let anyone go through that emotional stress and that pain that I went through. And so I became a advocate on my own. And then when our service formalized a peer support team, that was just the natural progression and being an advocate for that and, and trying to do my best to prevent other people from going through the stresses that I went through. Thank you, Ted and Nancy, for sharing your stories with us and advocating to help others so they don't have to face the same struggles that you have in your careers. Nancy, can you tell us more about what compassion fatigue is? Certainly, but let me start by reassuring people that experiencing compassion fatigue is in fact an occupational hazard in a helping profession. So it's not a sign of weakness. It's not a sign that you aren't doing enough self-care or doing self-care correctly. It's a natural consequence of the work that we do. And we will all experience compassion fatigue to varying degrees throughout our work life. So what is compassion fatigue? It is the caregiver's reduced capacity for or interest in being empathetic with others suffering, which is why it's also sometimes referred to as empathic strain. And it's characterized by deep physical and emotional exhaustion, resulting in increased cynicism and resentment at work, a loss of enjoyment in our careers, and it can lead to serious mental health issues and stress-related illnesses. 
And so compassion fatigue occurs when the trauma we've experienced directly in our own lives, so our primary traumatic stress, and the trauma we've experienced indirectly through hearing stories of another suffering, which is secondary traumatic stress, and the chronic stress of perceived or real workplace demands exceeding workplace resources, which is burnout, when they all converge, that is when people will start to experience compassion fatigue. How would someone know that they are experiencing compassion fatigue or vicarious trauma? Well, usually our bodies start to tell us first. So it may be overwhelming exhaustion or headaches, insomnia or significant changes in sleep habits, irritable bowels or neck pain. But behavioral signs and symptoms are also prevalent, and that can include increased use of alcohol and drugs, anger and irritability, depleted parenting and problems in our personal relationships with our intimate partners, could be avoidance of patients or clients, coworkers, friends or family, and what we call the silencing response. So when we are in the throes of compassion fatigue and simply don't have the capacity to hear someone else's story of loss, pain or suffering, we silence them by changing the subject when they try to talk to us, or we may minimize their distress or provide pat answers, or we may use humor to shut them down. Much like what I did with the mom of a young man who was experiencing psychosis for the first time, I silenced her rather than being a compassionate listener. And compassion fatigue will also show itself in our psychological responses. So we may begin to feel higher levels of anxiety, depression, worry, cynicism, and resentment. And I sometimes think of the cynicism and resentment as the must-be-nice response. So this is when, say, a coworker comes to you and tells you they just came back from a walk during their break and you respond with, oh, how lovely. But what you're really thinking is, must be nice. I don't have time to go to the bathroom and you get to go play outside. So when we start to have that kind of self-talk, that can be a sign and symptom as well. And people may also start to experience disproportionate responses to images, material or emotional stimuli. So you're crying watching the kitten commercial or having just a flat response to really disturbing news coverage of a tragedy. We will also see increases in absenteeism and attrition. And another contributor to the degree to which we will experience compassion fatigue is moral stressors. And certainly through a pandemic, we've seen an increase in, in moral stressors. And they range in severity along a continuum based on their potential to lead to psychological, social, spiritual harm and impairment. And that continuum ranges from moral frustration to moral distress to moral injury. Moral distress and moral injury affects our thoughts and feelings about ourselves and about others. So we may experience feelings of guilt, shame, anger, or disgust. And it may be disgust at ourselves for doing something or for not doing something, but it may be disgust at others' actions or inactions. And our thoughts and beliefs about ourselves may change. We may have lower self-esteem and higher self-criticism and beliefs that we are somehow bad, damaged, or weak. And we may start to lose faith in others and lack trusted authority figures. And eventually we may experience a loss of faith in previously held religious beliefs or just simply no longer believe in a just world. Nancy, what advice do you have for people to manage their own level of compassion fatigue? Addressing compassion fatigue starts with self-awareness. And there are a couple of great tools to help people assess the degree to which they are experiencing compassion fatigue and vicarious trauma. I like to use the Professional Quality of Life Scale or the ProQual Scale. It includes 30 questions that provide you with a scale of low, average, or high in the areas of compassion satisfaction versus compassion fatigue, burnout, and secondary trauma. 
And you can easily find this tool by typing in professional quality of life scale in your preferred browser, or it'll be in the notes following this session. Another tool we find very helpful is the mental health continuum, which uses a green, yellow, red scale. This tool is about learning to recognize symptoms as an important check-in and to develop a warning system and provide some direction on how to respond with either increasing your social supports and self-care strategies and guidance on when to reach out for professional supports. The green zone is where you are when you are at your very best. It's those times when you remember the why of what you do. And here's the place of compassion satisfaction. There is an energy that feels similar to when you've just gotten back from a vacation, for example. This is fairly far back from the edge of the cliff, and there is not a lot of danger that you will plunge off. And so in this zone, we say you continue with your social supports and your self-care strategies. The yellow zone is where most of us, including myself, live most of the time. There are warning signs emerging, such as anger and irritability, fatigue or exhaustion, withdrawing from friends and family, no sense of humor or fun, or, and just a reduced ability to feel sympathy and empathy. And we often ignore these signs and have the drive to do more and work harder. But the longer we ignore these signs in the yellow zone, the closer we become to the edge of the cliff. This is where we need to catch ourselves to avoid moving into that red zone. And by catching ourselves, we're able to ramp up our social supports, both at work and at home, and our self-care strategies, and reach out for those external supports as needed. I will say we will all visit the less extreme end of the red zone several times in our career. It's a normal consequence of doing a good job. But we don't want to ever visit the extreme end of the red zone, which is the real danger zone. That extreme end of the red zone finds us falling off the cliff and into that pit of compassion fatigue, vicarious trauma, or burnout. And signs can include clinical depression or totally withdrawing from others and struggling with anxiety. So I've found in my work, I can often begin my day in the green zone and, and can have something that will happen and I can slide into that yellow zone. And having an understanding of what your yellow zone looks and feels like will help you better manage yourself along this continuum. The challenge is not to go into denial because the closer we get to the edge, the harder it is to step back. So this is why on a regular basis, I'm committed to asking myself where I am on my warning sign continuum. And if I sense that I'm not really being honest with myself, I'll use the professional quality of life scale to help gauge where I am. This helps me in my journey of staying on the solid ground and not landing in that pit. And a key mitigating strategy is extreme self-care, where you are intentional in creating time and space to do things that bring you joy and keep you healthy. And extreme self-care begins with learning to be selfish. And for most of us, the word selfish conjures up negative reactions, but there's a very positive side to it as well. For example, we've all been told by that flight attendant when we're flying on the plane, when we have children, that when that mask falls, you put that mask on yourself first before you start to help someone else. And really, when you practice extreme self-care and put yourself first, you are then fully available to help others without resentment or anger. We've talked about compassion fatigue at an individual level, but I suspect it can also impact teams in the workplace as a whole. What does that look like and what strategies can we use to help minimize the effects of compassion fatigue in our workplace? It absolutely can affect a workplace or a team. So we've all heard about that toxic work environment, and I believe that's often rooted in an individual experiencing high levels of compassion fatigue and vicarious trauma that becomes a contagion within the team or the organization. So we start to see high absenteeism and turnover. 
difficulties in coworkers' relationships, they become more fractured. Inability of staff to meet deadlines or complete tasks, uh, we might see aggressive and uncivil behavior increasing, excessive complaining and blaming, and negativity towards management, and, and the inability of staff to believe that improvement is possible. And so when we start to see teams behaving that way, that's often rooted in compassion fatigue. We know that the work we do in helping professions means we will be exposed to others' pain, suffering, and loss. That's unavoidable. But what is avoidable is secondarily traumatizing our peers and coworkers when we talk about and debrief these experiences. We know there is a healing benefit for us when we're able to unburden ourselves of our own traumatic exposures, but we often end up sliming our listeners when sharing these stories by including too much detail or inadvertently secondarily traumatizing the listener. So I would say ask yourself, have you ever come back from a difficult, stressful, or traumatic call and found the first person available and said, man, you won't believe the call I just had. It was horrific. This guy, and you literally blurt out every gory detail of the call to your colleague. And they're completely unprepared to hear it, and we end up secondarily traumatizing them. And so this is what we call sliming, and we tend to be really good at it in healthcare. But there is a really effective four-step approach that we can use that allows us the healing benefit of sharing that experience, but without traumatizing or sliming the listener. And it's called low-impact debriefing. So I'm going to walk you through that. The first step is increased self-awareness. So before you start to tell your story, pause and ask yourself, what are the important details? What can be left out? Do I need to tell all the detail or can I share an abbreviated version? The second step involves providing fair warning, and we actually do this in other areas of our lives already. So think about having to call a friend to tell them that a mutual friend has been diagnosed with a serious illness. You would likely start the phone call with, I have some difficult news to tell you, rather than just immediately telling somebody the news. And in our workplace, we can do this as well. The fair warning step could be as simple as saying, I just had a really difficult experience that I'd like to talk about. And you could give a bit more detail, such as it involves a young cancer patient who died. And so now your listener is better prepared for what's coming next. And that third step involves obtaining consent. Your listener can decide if it's a good time for them to be an attentive listener or if it's material that they can hear, recognizing that for some people, the topic you identified in your fair warning may in fact be a trigger for the listener based on their own primary traumatic history. The listener can then either give you the go-ahead to proceed, they might negotiate some boundaries, or indicate that they may not be the best person to talk to and help you find someone else. And then the fourth and final step is to begin with that limited disclosure of your content. You can think of it like turning on a tap and starting with just a trickle and working towards having the tap turned on fully. And in fact, we find that people don't end up having to tell their whole story sometimes when they're using this approach. Uh, that they never get that tap on full blast because the healing benefit occurs as they start to share limited detail rather than starting at the most horrific part of the story. And because you took the time in step one to decide what to share and what you may wish to withhold, you're in a better position then to manage that final step in that four-step approach. Let's revisit Ted's story from the beginning of the podcast using the steps Nancy just spoke to us about. Hey, Ryan. I know you said that I could always come to you if I wanted to talk about anything. Is that cool? Sure, Ted. Absolutely. Uh, I want to talk to you about something that 
kind of hits close to home and it could be a trigger and stop me at any point, but I'd like to talk about a pediatric VSA I did the other day. Absolutely, Ted. And just to let you know, I have a five-year-old son and a two-year-old daughter at home. So if our discussion hits too close to home, I might have to stop you and get another peer support team member to take my place or just maybe get you to share less details. All right, that's fair. And so then in this process, Ted starts to share his story and he would start at the beginning to say, we arrived on the scene, it was controlled chaos, and he would start to share the story and then talk a little bit about how he got back to the station and not really remembering how he got there. And so you focus on the emotional impact. And so what Ted would have done for step one in the self-awareness piece is he's decided what to withhold. So he didn't describe, as he shared the story, the type of injury to the child. He didn't describe the behavior of the parents and sure were very distraught. So he didn't describe the sights, the sounds of what he saw and heard. Um, because in sharing that level of detail to Ryan would only have traumatized Ryan as the listener. And so that's how the low impact debriefing works. And the step one is so critically important. And one of the other things that's really important about step one is that it also helps you manage the curiosity seekers. So those are those people that as you're telling your story, they say, well, what happened to the child? And because you've done step one, you're able to say, I'm not sure that's helpful for me to share that with you. And so step one is critically important in this process. So low impact debriefing is a highly effective skill, but like all skills, it takes some practice to become fluent in its use. And so I would just say, be kind to yourselves as you're learning. Excellent. And thank you, Nancy, for sharing your approach to talking about traumatic events with our peers. You shared some very useful skills that are immediately usable to all of us and have a huge potential to lessen the impact of these traumatic events. And thank you, Ted, for sharing your story with not only Nancy and I, but everyone listening in as well. And thank you to the wonderful folks here at Southwest Ontario Regional Base Hospital Program for your support to our paramedics. I'll encourage everyone listening, whether you are on a peer support team or not, to take something away from this podcast to use in your daily lives. The trauma we experience does not have to be the trauma others experience, but you can still get the support you need by sharing appropriately with your peers. If I could just add one more thing, Ryan, just a reminder to all the medics out there, peer support is a two-way process. We have the, the people that are doing the work of peer support, and we have the people that we're trying to help out. And using that four-step program, it's good for the people that are working in peer support to remember that they don't have to be that only person, that you do have the opportunity to protect yourself and keep yourself healthy. You know, we, we take on all that stuff at work and then we add on the stress of doing some peer support work. So you shouldn't have to take on everyone else's stress and your own stress when it comes to peer support. Your bucket can only be filled to a certain point. So it's okay for you to say to somebody that comes to you for support exactly what Ryan said to me. You know what, if this touches too close to home, I'm going to get somebody else to have a talk with you because you have to protect yourself. You're not going to be any good to anybody in peer support if your bucket is overflowing. Thanks, Ted. And to all the medics out there, if you find yourself in that yellow or red zone, please remember that you are not broken. You are experiencing normal reactions to abnormal situations. There's no shame in reaching out to your peer support team, trusted coworker, or your mental health professional. Thank you everyone for joining us today.